Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Wish you could fish more, anywhere, anytime. Rod Geeks, a St. Croix Rods partner, has developed a 42-inch one-piece travel rod designed and built with the same technology found in St. Croix Rods. This travel rod is offered as a kit that comes with the RG42 rod, spinning reel, fishing line, pliers, and tackle tray. All in a case with space for your wallet, phone, and fishing license. Just grab and go. Perfect to keep in your pickup, car, or RV. This shorty performs much like a longer rod, but is compact enough for easy storage and for on-the-go use. Make this the summer you fish more. RodGeeks.com GuideFitter.com GuideFitter, bridging you to the outdoors while providing a quality platform for guides and outfitters for you to select from. GuideFitter is the best place to get discounts on gear if you're an outdoor professional. As a game warden, I'm a member of the Outdoor Government Program, which has over 80 quality brands to get discounts from. It's free to join. Yes, free to join. And all you need to do is prove that you're an active outdoor government employee. There are all kinds of products available. Apparel, boots, archery equipment, optics, backpacks, cameras, watches, ammo, anything, you name it. And while you're there, check out the articles, information, and stories that you'll be inspired from. So before you head out to work in the outdoors or start your next outdoor adventure, check out GuideFitter.com and get discounts on your everyday or every so often outdoor equipment. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders for GuideFitter. Wireless Partners building the first net cellular network for AT&T in New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont to ensure first responders can always communicate in emergency situations so you know help is on the way when you need it. Wireless Partners is partnering for success with communities, local and state government, local business, and visitors. Wireless Partners, building cellular networks for you. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief.
please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 17, John Norris Jr., California Game Warden, retired, and author of The Hidden War. And The Hidden War is a book that John wrote regarding the cartels growing marijuana in California and the impact that it has on our environment, on the waterways, on the wildlife, on the ground, and what an environmental tragedy it is, and that they needed to take action to stop it. John's a really interesting guy. I really enjoyed speaking with him. This is my second interview with John. John's been on numerous podcasts promoting his book. He's doing an awesome job. He was on Meat Eater. He's been on Joe Rogan. He is doing an outstanding job promoting this book, and each and every one of you should grab this book and read it. So we did a similar podcast. And when I say similar, there's nothing can beat Game Warden to Game Warden talking about issues, talking about being a Game Warden and giving you the insight into it. But I wanted to go before that. I wanted to go and set a foundation for you, the listener, to get a feel for John Norris starting his career as a Game Warden, making some Game Warden-type cases, and how all this influenced him into becoming the leader of this team that actually went out, found these grow sites, surveilled them, and then jointly with other law enforcement took them out. And then the recovery process of that area, the waterways, the land, to take out the poisons that were put into the ground there. It, it's quite a task that John took on. And it was quite a problem. So pick up the hidden war and read about that problem. And then later down the road, I'm going to do that. I'm going to put on Warden's Watch, our second interview, which was actually our first interview. But I wanted to go back. I want to name this before the weed. But then I didn't know whether I should name it Trailblazer. Because that's what John is. That's what his handle became. And he certainly trailblazed in his career. And that's just the path that he took and how it developed. I wanted that foundation for you, my listener, in order to read that book. So you could listen to the foundational stories of the game warden, John Norris Jr., before he took over this very effective, very highly trained team. And then you can listen to the other podcasts. You can read his book. And down the road, you can listen to the podcast John and I did. Because there's nothing like two game wardens talking because we talk the same language. And I'm going to ask forgiveness now because sometimes we talk a language and we don't remember that maybe you don't understand the language we're talking because it's just part of us. And when we say certain things, we don't explain it to the public, which we need to. I, I need to. I need to try to have a blank canvas, so to speak, and then try to 
bring you into that, to understand things that we already understand so you can understand what we are talking about, what we're going through, and the development of a conservation officer, game warden, agent, whatever the state names it, whatever the federal agency names it, we are all similar. Something else I want to talk about just before we get into this is it's October in New Hampshire and awesome. If you've never been to New Hampshire the first few weeks of October, the colors explode on the mountains and this year is is just incredible. What a place to visit. So if you if you're looking for a place in October to go visit, the last week September, first week in October, second week in October sometimes depending weather, the mountains explode like fire and it is probably one of the seven wonders of the world if you ask me every time i travel i I enjoy seeing the different terrain but new hampshire is spectacular because of the mountains and because of the layers of things you can see when you're looking at these colors of the trees changing in the fall just before they lose their leaves and it's because the elevation you can see those layers uh, along the river sides, you can see those at a distance. It's a pretty awesome place. So this uh, episode 17 is October in New Hampshire, and I just can't get enough of it. Didn't really want to sit down and uh, do this uh, podcast, to be honest with you, because I wanted to be out there, outside. And I'm going to encourage you, while you're getting outside, you can listen to this podcast on your way to enjoy an adventure in the outdoors. Now we're going back to California with Lieutenant John Norris Jr., retired, and the author of The Hidden War. We'll get right into it. Hope you enjoy. I was sharing with John, this is my first remote podcast, and I don't know if I'm going to like it because all of my training and everything has been in person, reading body language, and this is going to just be so different. We're doing a audio from... Montana, right, John? Yeah, actually, we're we're in California today, Wayne. We're uh, right. over uh, in the Silicon Valley doing some uh, business uh, back in Cali, and you know, I agree with you. It's um, one. It's great to be on the show. Thanks again for having me. And uh, I think the blow of not being face to face, like we both like to, is a little lesson because we did get to meet at the uh, the Wildlife Crime Stoppers uh, conference and, and, and get to meet and get face to face on that one. But it's a little different doing it remote, you know, but I know you now, so it's good. Yeah. We, we have had that face to face experience and that was a great interview. And like I told you before, I, I've been listening to the podcast and I just don't want to do the same podcast. Uh, you know, I'm a, yeah. and it cracks me up when your email or your handle is trailblazer. And I think that's what a lot of game wardens are. We, we have a hard time following in someone else's shoes. We can take orders just fine, but it's following that same trait. Right. <laughs> Where's that handle come from anyways? Because I, I, I really like it. And it, it, when, I, when I was going to approach you the other day about changing the game plan, I was like, you know, I don't know how John's going to take this. You know, his book's really popular. We're talking about the hidden war. John wrote, he is killing it uh, on a lot of, on a lot of things. And if you don't have this book, you got to get it and read it. And you can learn about the hidden war, about what's going on in California and the marijuana grows. But I just, uh, I guess I want to do something different. And when I saw the, the trailblazer, I'm like, you know, John's very similar to me. He's going to understand. We're, <laughs> we're very accommodating. 
Yeah, for sure. And um, to to get to Trailblazer, that was that was a, a call sign that developed my my name on our tactical unit and just kind of throughout the career, even before we got into special operations on on the whole you know cartel marijuana thing we've talked a little bit about. Um, that became a call sign, you know, just Trailblazer, and it was one of those things that is not only what I think I stand for and you stand for, Wayne, but we all do as as game wardens as part of that you know that very thin thin green line. Um, we are out there being pioneers, you know, we kind of have to be because we're, you know, working in remote areas, we're working alone, we're having to think outside of the box. And, you know, when I think of my career that just, just ended this last December and, you know, 28 amazing years of working uh, here in the state of California as a game warden, uh, I just think about all the different out of the box progressive programs or types of enforcement issues I dealt with throughout uh, what I cons- what I thought was a very diverse and very blessed career of getting to do so many different things. Um, but things I would have never expected, you know, when I, uh, when I went through the Academy way back in, I'm a date myself way back in 1992 and um, looked really at the traditional game wardens role is so cool, you know, and wanting to do all those traditional things and bust those hardcore poachers in, in the realm of, uh, uh, you know, guys doing everything illegal on uh, on the poaching front, whether it's angling or you know what environmental crime, whatever the case may be. But so that's kind of how the name developed, and it's just kind of stuck. So, like it or not, Trailblazers here to stay. How long have you had that handle? Um, I'm going to go back to about 2004. Yeah, 2004. It, it kind of started when um, we started integrating with the uh, Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office and their marijuana eradication team. And I was starting to find these cartel grows that we talked about in, in, in the last interview. Um, but as we started to need, you know, quote unquote, a call sign so we could stay, you know, unidentified or at least more secure and not use all of our real names, mm-hmm. um, that started to, started to happen when you started to integrate into more tactical groups with mainline law enforcement SWAT teams or military so we all, and my first book goes into this a lot in, in War in the Woods, all those different call signs we used, obviously for security reasons, but also to really um, kind of, you know, in, in a cool way, describe the personalities of all the uh, different operators between the sheriff's office and our game warden team working together. And everyone had a unique name and that's how Trailblazer kind of started and it's, uh, it's stuck and I'm, I feel honored to have it. So it, it, uh, it's going to stay. No, no, it's very unique, and I, I think think you're right. A lot of us share those traits, and that's what I, I kind of chuckled to myself when I saw it. I'm like, you know, that's that's the game warden sign. That's the trailblazer. How many times have we worked yep. in the woods, and uh, we have a location, and we got to get there, and we don't want to go the same way that, that the poacher goes. That's the easy way. That's the way that we could right. get caught. So we, we trailblazed to get in there. But I do want to bring you back to your academy days because that's one thing I'm curious about because I'm not a, I'm not really familiar with the California A Academy and the process, and is it the same today as it was when you started? Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. I, know, I, I, I got all kinds of questions in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, um, that's a that's that's a great question because interestingly enough. When I started the academy in 1992, um, I was in what was called Resource Academy 4. It was the fourth academy of our own academy where we were at Napa Valley College. We weren't going to a a police academy and then collaterally moving over into fish and wildlife work afterwards. 
like we had done up to that point. So I want to say right around the very, very late 80s, we had our first academy, it, the Resource Academy 1 in Napa, and then it, it was successful. And we were getting people, you know, well, that, that's an out academy. of the public. I'm sorry, I'm going to walk all over you, but that's an academy Oh no, just of game wardens, right? Correct. Correct. And, and again, that was one of those quote unquote trailblazer moments for the agency. And it was a historical moment for the agency to kind of find their own and be legitimized at the level of training where we weren't just, you know, jumping into a mainline law enforcement academy and then having to kind of, you know, wing it as far as the specific wildlife officer stuff we need to learn that all of us have needed to learn that we usually learn through a, you know, a field training officer program. If our agency has that. And at the time when I went in and resource Academy four, we, we not only had our own Academy and we had had three behind me, you know, to really get it running and kind of a little battle rhythm of, of really running smoothly. But we had an amazing FTO program three weeks long. I believe at the time it's now four weeks per trainer. I went around the state, really diverse areas, all over the state of different trainers with different specialties out of that, um, out of that resource Academy and was really, really well prepared for the solo game warden job at school. Yeah, no, that sounds uh, similar to the way we run it as far as the FTO program. How many weeks was your Academy and is it the same now as it was then? And how many people too? Yeah, it, yeah, we had, I want to say we started with right around 40, 45 cadets give or take. And the way we worked it in California, and we still do is we have sponsored and unsponsored. So those of us that are sponsored are already hired by the agency. We're running a fishing game patch for the agency. We're, you know, we're paid as a cadet. We're, you know, hosted and paid for room and board, wherever the Academy is. Cause everybody's, you know, from remote areas of the state. Now they're living in Napa, California. And then we have a lot of folks that are putting themselves through what they call an unsponsored position. They're putting up their own time and dime to try to get on the hiring list and become a warden and have a leg up. So, and we've got some of our best game wardens in the past, Wayne, that were unsponsored cadets that just didn't quite have the education when they needed to apply or the slots were full. So they said, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. And obviously the motivation there, given the fact that they're putting up so much of their own resources to do it shows their intent, shows their dedication. So we had a mixed bag. We had kind of 50, 50, out of those 45 or so cadets. Now, the interesting part, when I was hired in 92, to be a white male and get hired in California as a game warden was really, really difficult because we had limited positions. At that time, you know, a lot of people wanted to be a game warden because we had a lot of consumptive conservationists back in those days, even here and uh, throughout all of California. So when I applied, I think there, you know, there was a hiring freeze. And a hiring freeze went on for like two years. So when I applied for the job and went through the written test and tested for the start of this whole thing, there were like 10,000 applicants across the whole state for virtually no positions. And if you weren't a, a military veteran with preference points or, you know, some minority um, status and stuff like that during the whole affirmative action phase in California, it was going to be tough. And so I did not expect to get hired for any time in, in that near future from when I tested. Um, and it took about, it took about a solid two years before I was, I was picked off that civilian list to get into that fourth Academy. I was lucky, lucky to get in at the time. Wow. And I had heard about, 
you know, the unsponsored positions. I just, it just blows my mind that that still occurs today that you can put yourself through. And I, I think it's a good thing because you're right. It takes motivated people to be a game warden. And what says more about motivation if you're putting yourself through a law enforcement academy? Right. Right. And, and, and the nice thing on that, if you look at it, you look at the demographics we look at nationally. And I know you and I talked about this when, uh, when we met a few months ago, just the demographics of uh, the loss of kind of the conservation mindset and the exposure to our new generation of the outdoors, of hunting and fishing, of ethical and legal conservation. And in California, as the years have progressed since I started my, my career, we've had less and less and less consumptive users of wildlife and more of a preservationist attitude you know, here in California. So, and this isn't a, this isn't a negative dig on anybody or anything. And I, I want to, cl- you know, put that out there to start, but you can see that it would be hard to get candidates that would be comfortable in the woods out by, by themselves without backup around, you know, everybody that has guns and knives, right. Um, mm-hmm. 90, 90 plus percent of those folks are going to see are going to be great stewards of, of wildlife and they're going to be our allies. And we like to see them, but you you got to have a cadet that's really comfortable around that mindset going into the training. As we got less and less kids and, and our, our next generation exposed to that stuff uh, in their personal lives, we started to get very inexperienced people coming into our academies that had never been around firearms. They had never hunted. Maybe they had angled a couple, you know, done a little bit of fishing. And so now they're, you know, they're kind of thrown into the grinder of contacting these type of folks all the time. And it was really tough. And a lot of those, a lot of those uh, cadets didn't make the program. They didn't make FTO because it just wasn't a good fit. But then you get the guys from the unsponsored Academy. Now, you know that if they're putting up their money and they don't even know if they're going to get hired, you can imagine these, these guys and gals have had a lot of background in the outdoors and, you know, they are diehard conservationists. So it's just so cool to see. And we're still doing that here in California, even in our, as we expand in cannabis enforcement, all these specialized teams, um, we're still doing the unsponsored and bringing in some really good people and, and they're, they're getting jobs. So it's, it's neat to see. No, absolutely. And I, I, it sounds like the, the same things that occurred in California occurred on the East Coast as well as far as in those 90s. It was very difficult to get a job. It was a lot of hard work. You had to be in the, the, yep. best, the best and the tops of the list. Uh, very, very similar. But now it's, it's very difficult to find those people to fill those jobs. Testing 100 people yeah. at a time and qualifying maybe a dozen and then it's selecting one or two or three maybe. And we're talking about little old New Hampshire. Never mind the Maine, yeah. the New Yorks, the you know, the, the issues that we're having. Looked at some stats lately, the millennials are gravitating towards cities. That's where they want to live, that's where they Big want time. Yeah. So they're they're losing yep. that connection. And they may have that connection, like you said, through hiking, through wildlife watching. And everybody loves the outdoors. I don't, I don't care if you live in a city. You still love the outdoors. So right. it, just to expose them to that type of thing, and that, not that it's wrong, that it's different. That people, and that's, I, I love watching the shows that show Alaska, how they live in Alaska, and how they live in northern Colorado, and you know, off-the-grid type things, because it's just different. Uh, it's not wrong. It's different. Yeah, it, it is. And you hit it on the head with, with that, that mindset in that you don't have to be a consumptive user of wildlife and quote unquote a conservationist to really feel in passion to protect wildlife. I think one of the things, and we, you and I talked a little bit about this, you know, before we started recording, but since talking to guys and, and you know, a friend like Joe Rogan after doing his show and having those conversations both, you know, on broadcast and off, 
you know, a guy that never grew up doing any hunting and fishing, right. And doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. lean any one way politically. And, you know, just as more about unifying versus polarizing finds conservation, you know, as an archery hunter, you know, fairly recently and just loves the whole sport, loves the fact that it's putting back to wildlife and, and giving back through, um, the efforts to be a legal and ethical hunter. And, you know, that type of reach shows that everybody can benefit from protecting our wildlife, wildlands and waterways, whether, like you said, Wayne, whether you're living in the city of New York or the downtown San Jose here in the, you know, tech capital of the world where I'm originally from in Silicon Valley, you admire and you appreciate what's left out there because it's so fleeting. It's, it's a calming thing. It's a beautiful thing to see. And you don't have to be a consumptive user to enjoy it. And I think if we, if we look at wildlife protection, more broadly, and we look at it from all different factions, whether you're a consumptive user or not, preservationist, conservationist, let's not, you know, have a dividing line. Let's not, you know, banner back and forth and, 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 and be against each other. Let's, let's unify, you know, rather yep. than polarize and protect what we have left because it's fleeting in this nation and we all know it. Absolutely. And it's kind of similar when the hunters fight, uh, you know, the dog hunters versus the, the traditionalists. And right. so, we're all right, hunters. Right. Why, why are fighting amongst ourselves, you know, when we're all conservationists? I think that some of the things aren't being taught because when you talk to our biologists, we're on the same playing field as them. If some of these people that are against that actually listen to our biologists and how we manage it and why we manage it, I, I think they would come to a better understanding rather than the preservation, you know, the conservation. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And this gets into really looking at the logic and the science versus the emotional gut reaction to a particular act, you know, and I, I, I mean, we've all dealt with this as game wardens in our careers where, I mean, like you, one of the funnest things I ever did, um, you know, all 28 years of my career was always taking time out to teach hunter education, whether it be to new hunters that are adults, kids, especially the next generation and explain, you know, how this, uh, this type of activity of being a conservationist and doing legal and ethical hunting actually helps wildlife numbers and brings wildlife numbers back and puts money into the system to do the studies to enhance certain habitats, you know, to make sure we don't take too many animals in one species and not enough in another for the whole conservation cycle. And um, trying to always explain that no matter where you sit on the fence of for or against, you know, it can be challenging, but it's important to get that message out. And I agree if we could just educate a little more and and come to the table a little more open-mindedly and a little less emotionally, we probably come to the same conclusions a lot more frequently, I I would imagine. Yep, I think you hit it on the head with the emotions because wildlife instills emotions in us. Being out there instills emotions in every one of us. You can't help it. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. You bet. So let's get back to after the Academy. I, I, I always remember the, well, I always want to talk about the first memorable story that a game warden has had because it's usually a good one that's kind of burned it into his soul and kind of branded him for his career. You have one of those things that jump out you that, geez, this is my first good game warden story. Yeah, the first 
when I got to, when I got out of the Academy, I was, you know, I was a Silicon Valley, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of North coast guy here on the coast of the Santa Cruz area. Um, and I went, went to Napa, did my training and, and you had asked before how long was the training? It was right around six months at the time. And wow. it was a long Academy for, yeah, it was long. It was a full wow. California peace officers Academy. So in California, we go through everything through the post, what they call the post program, peace officer standard and training that every California law enforcement officer has to go through. That's highway patrol. That's the sheriffs, that's city police. Um, and that's us. So we're trained to do everything. And as you know, we're all sworn to protect and, you know, enforce every type of criminal code and, but focus on wildlife. So we went through all of that. And then we had another three or four weeks of just wildlife enforcement specific training, um, wildlife forensics, wildlife ID, exotic weapons training, where, you know, you just have five to 600 different weapon systems in a classroom one day and you spend days just learning how to unload them safely, identify them, test them for like assault rifles for full auto fire versus semi-automatic fire, all of these different things, <clears throat> which I found fascinating. I thought that really mm-hmm. was some of the most relevant training as a game warden coming in, regardless of the, you know, hunting and fishing and shooting background I had, I learned a ton in that, in that curriculum. And so um, very valuable to all of us. And now we've, you know, now our academy is over seven months long, and our fishing game specific wildlife training is, I want to say, eight, nine, it might be 10 weeks long um, on top of what we used to go through because of the challenges. So having all that training even back in the day was real helpful. And then going through FTO and trying to impress and do a good job with my FTOs all over different parts of the state was, was helpful. But hitting the ground as a solo game warden in Western Riverside County, what they call the Inland Empire, it's just over the hill east of the Los Angeles basin. It was a wild west. I mean, I don't know any other way to phrase it. It got <laughs> western quick. <laughs> wow. I was, you know, I, I, I'm from the Silicon Valley. We got state parks here. We got private ranches, you know, and I had grown up in this environment. And then I go down there and there's all this like public land and national forest and water company property and, and power company property that's unfenced and anybody can go in. So Wayne, what I was experiencing like right out of the gate, like six months in, was a big compliment of Los Angeles Basin-based spotlighters coming over the hill and getting in my little, you know, desert wooded canyons um, in areas like Lake Elsinore, Temecula, where I lived, uh, all the way out to Hemet, all these areas that have a lot of wildlife, but they, you just wouldn't know it unless you were really immersed in the area. And we had a rampant outbreak of L.A. Basin, actually gangbangers, um, of all things, um, you know, guys affiliated in gangs with illegal weapons mm-hmm. coming over the hill just to get away from, you know, any type of law enforcement where they were always on the run in, in Southern California and get out into a little bit open space. So, you know, they would, you know, they wouldn't hit the hills till like most spotlighters, you know, for deer till after 11 p.m. And it took a while to find out what these guys were doing but we would set up in certain canyons and just watch these lights go like crazy and i remember my first spotlighting stop down there and and this is funny because when you go back to the academy days all of my mentors and heroes in the academy were these instructors and these tack officers that had legendary careers of catching the hardcore out of season post rut you know big buck spotlighter in the highest mountain ranges of california 
and they had careers of just doing all kinds of great cases. And I wanted to be that guy. I knew right away, my mentors told me, they said, hey, you're going to develop and you're going to establish your reputation of being a good game warden that's going to get, you know, not just the guy that makes a mistake or, you know, the freebie that you just walk up to in uniform, but someone you're going to hide out on for days at a time and catch somebody that's intentionally decimating wildlife species and having an exponential effect on the herds because they know the game warden's game and they get around us all the time and they never get caught. I wanted to catch those guys yes. because that's what my heroes did. Right. And mm-hmm. they told me, you know, go out and work your, work your butt off because you're going to make your reputation for your entire career in the first two years when you hit the field. Mm-hmm. And you know, those were, those words burned inside, man. So, you know, when I went down to Riverside, I was, out of control. I was never home, you know, like (laughs) typical game wardens. I was working days and nights and I was just trying to learn my country. And I was in a foreign land. I had never, I mean, I've been to like Disneyland once. (laughs) I didn't know Southern California. I mean, that place was just, it was, it was a war zone, man, you know? And uh, so I get down there and I start working these canyons and my partners, my other partners that were kind of new in the County too, we'd all be spread out and um, on these you know, there's a reason why those areas were vacated, right? That they were empty. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when you talk about all the new ones in the area, I'm like, yeah, no one wanted to be there. <laughs> and we all got sent there first. That's you know? right. So, it, 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 yeah, it was funny in my academy, uh, Jim Barton, who was our captain, and we were getting our, you know, our district assignments about halfway through. He said, okay, Mr. Norris, so uh, you're going to Lake Elsinore. And I, and at first I thought I heard Lake Almanor and Lake Almanor is this pristine mountain camping retreat resort, beautiful, you know, trout fishing lake in Northern California. I went, and it's like a garden spot, right. That we all dream of uh-huh. like, and I, I perked up and he said, I don't think you heard me right. Lake <laughs> Elsinore. And then all these guys that were from, they were lifeguards and state parks, uh, laterals coming over to our coming over to fish and wildlife. And they were all from down there and they just looked and they laughed and they're like, Oh my gosh, you have no, <laughs> you have no idea where you're going, but, mm-hmm. but no, it was. And, and looking back on it, um, I'll get into the story in a minute. It was the best thing that could have happened to me because I was thrown into the fire. The learning curve was exponentially greater than it ever would have been if I had worked, you know, in my home area of the Silicon Valley, or I think any other part of California. But these gangbangers were coming across over the hill, Wayne, and they were running everything from AKs to 1022s to, you know, automatic pistols. A lot of these weapons were illegal, um, assault shotguns, you name it. And they had a ton of ammo and they would spotlight through these canyons and they'd shoot everything. They'd shoot rabbits, they'd shoot coyotes, they'd shoot does. I even caught one group that would, that would come in one canyon and they'd just spotlight on the way in. You know, and if it, you know, if it, if, if it crawled, it fell and they'd shoot it, pick it up, put it in the truck and they'd go into the back end of a dam, which was an outlet of a lake down there. And it was a kind of a wooded riparian belt that was really well hidden, but there were, there was a great fishery coming out of this dam in this spillway and they'd set up a gill net and they'd set the gill net and they just let the gill net work for hours that night. And every couple of hours they kind of go out and they do their run of a couple of miles out of that spillway area, that outlet of the creek. And they just spotlight along that creek back and forth. And when I, when I made that first stop, I think there were four of them, that first, the first stop I made. And, you know, I wanted to do it by the numbers. I'd, we'd gone through all the training, you know, felony car stops, vehicle stops, how you set up on spotlighters, like we've all done in our careers. And of course, Murphy's Law, 
as typical game warden case. It didn't work out the way it was supposed to. They made a turn into a canyon, and I set back because I didn't want to go into kind of a fatal funnel from training, and they came out, and it had to be a head-on stop or I was going to lose them or I was going to get seen. Right. And I didn't have a ride-along. I didn't have a partner. Um, so I did a head-on, you know, light-on-light, spotlight on them, and I saw all these guys, you know, two in the back of the truck, two in the front of the truck, in the cab, guys with guns over the top of the cab and it was an oh crap moment and i just you know did what i did back to training and called him out on the pa and you know had the had the had the weapon out did what i had to do called for as much backup as i could uh my closest game warden was my partner jerry who was way over on the hemet side hours away he was working spotlighters too but you know, God bless Riverside County Sheriff's. I got to know him that night for the first time. And, uh, those guys, the, those guys came ripping into this Canyon. Some of them were in sedans and just crashing the heck out of their, their cars that weren't equipped to go where they were. One of them had an SUV back in that time. And, uh, and yeah, we had gill netted fish. We had illegal weapons that actually I turned into the, you know, to help teach at the exotic weapons class. I just mentioned for our Academy, um, didn't have any, any violence that night. Um, couple of no bail warrants. So I was on overload. I was experiencing so many things on how to, I got to take guys to jail for the first time, you know, and mm -hmm. I thankfully I had the help of the sheriffs to help me on that. I had to, I had to seize four or five weapons, you know, that were all illegal, um, and, and, and deal with that and then deal with a bunch of dead critters and a bunch of dead fish and seize a gill net and get these guys, you know, cited out and booked in jail and, um, it was an all night affair, but you can imagine as overwhelming as it was, it was exciting as heck. <laughs> it was just so amazing. So I'm like, okay, these guys are poachers. There's no, you yeah, know, yeah, there's that, no great gray area right in what these, yeah, they, they, they epitomize, they epitomize the worst wildlife criminal you're ever going to, you're ever going to deal with. And so that, that first full year of being in, in district became, it became a spotlighting deal. It was our whole squad. And it was one of the, I think it was the first big boost in my career to how exciting it can be and dangerous, um, but how effective you can be at stopping a particular faction from coming over from an area and just decimating entire herds for one particular region, because we started to work spotlighters almost, you know, every night for the better part of, you know, the, the window of season through many, many months. And it was the ridiculous the amount of guys we caught continuously for that entire year. And I want to say that was 19, that would have been 1993 into 1994. And the whole squad was just on fire. We wrote more spotlighting cases than, than I, you know, I think it was a total of 85 or 90 for the whole squad and maybe close to a hundred and I, 74 of those I made personally just in my three or four areas, you know, over like a three or four month window it was a ridiculous number of, of spotlighting cases for California. And it was, Obviously, we had not had game wardens down there, and obviously people were, were running rampant, so it needed to be a targeted targeted approach, and, and we did that and, and learned a lot in the process. It was, it was really cool. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's incredible, and people don't realize what, what, when you take an animal out of, out of circulation, you're, you're affecting the whole ecosystem. You're affecting the breeding. You're affecting, you know, and to have that impact on that area, that was, in, that was an incredible thing to catch those and, and let those animals have a break. Yeah. It, it, it's so, you know, it didn't, it, I didn't really hit home to me for many years on the job, how much 
even making one case on one diehard poacher can, can have a difference on, on wildlife species or on a particular herd, like you just said. Um, especially when you, you know, when you see that big trophy buck being taken in the prime rut after season, after dark, and, you know, he, he's the granddaddy to keep those genetics in one particular Excellent. area for, you know, for generations. And then when I, when I talk about my old home state of California and I look at how much beautiful wildlife we have here and the diversity of species because of the terrain variances we have, you know, from the coast up to, you know, the, the threatened endangered Sierra bighorn sheep, even, you know, at a lone pine. I mean, we, we have such a diversity from the high altitude of almost 14,000 feet down to, you know, sea level desert to coastal woodlands to Sierra mountains and all this. And yet, you know, you look at like, like the rest of the states in the nation, not just um, here on the West coast, but the impact of development and population growth, urbanization, less open space, less corridors. Um, and then we have this little herd trying to hold on. And mm-hmm. one guy or one poacher, you know, takes, takes the one piece of genetic beauty that's going to keep that herd alive in that little tiny green belt. And um, it's devastating, you know, and the impact we, we have as wildlife officers really makes a difference. We, we need to be out there. And as you know, we're just not out there enough. No, absolutely. And, you know, the thing when you catch those guys, the first thing you want to do is go back out and catch more. Right. Yeah. You're like, okay, now I kind of got the recipe. It really does happen. Cause I don't know. Tell me from your experiences, but you know, we all grew up the early, I call us, you know, the, the 10, you know, we, what we've been 30 years and now retired. So spotlighting in every state back when we started was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I just look at, making that first case though, you know, hearing the stories going through the training and then you finally make the first case and you go, Oh, it does happen. You know, I've been out here for 20 nights straight and I haven't seen one thing. And you know, does this really happen? Or are they just sending me on, you know, is this a jack snipe hunt? What is going on? And, uh, and then when it starts happening, you really see the almost the sinister underground of how, um, how careful, you know, a dedicated poacher is when he's going to go out and, and work lights on deer, let's say, or how he's going to use a red light or how he's going to use a, a, a low beam light. And he's only going to cast it in certain ways very carefully to, to reveal himself as little as possible. I mean, there, there was some tactics involved in some of these guys we were catching and, um, and it wasn't easy, you know, as I'm sure you can relate to. And it does, it does feel good to make that case because, because stopping that one guy does make a difference for sure. Yeah. And it's that, that active, you know, that, that adrenaline charge, that adrenaline dump, like you said, prepping for this point and you, you haven't experienced it. And when you do, it's, yeah, it's like something you've never experienced before. It's an adrenaline dump. It's exciting. And the impact that you're having makes a difference. And the first thing I want to do is, is go out there and get another one and stop this and, and keep going. And it's just, yeah, because it's, it's part of us. It's, it's not just the job. It's a lifestyle, I always say. It's part of us, and that's why we, we work very hard. And the tactics that you, you, you're absolutely right, and I see what people have to deal with today. Night vision is coming down. Thermal image is coming down in price and cost. Yep. The, the warden 10 years from now has a dull different game. We need to change our tactics. Yeah. It's not the spotlighters we're looking for. It's the guys that are using their thermal imaging to heat up a field and they can see the cruiser sitting in it and they just keep driving by. It's, it's a whole different game that is starting because all those price tags are coming down. And it, it scares me some ways. And, you know, and I just see our tactics need to change. 
information is going to be more important in the future, things like Operation Game Thieves, International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, to get that information yes. to make those cases because the traditional way of catching night hunting is going to be gone in the next 10 years, I think. I think you're absolutely right. I think technology has, you know, technology can be both a blessing and a curse, right? And, um, and I have, and I've noticed the same thing you have, and we talk about this a lot and we talk about it in the special operations circle because, you know, Mm. while we use some of the, some of, some of the more advanced night vision for, you know, marijuana enforcement team operations on the tactical side, this stuff is dropping in price. Even the best stuff is, you know, for, for tactical teams. And what we started to see out here in California is, getting you know getting night vision and even thermal in the hands of our patrol guys out there in a district doing it old school trying to catch night hunters just trying to have a you know just trying to have an advantage so they're not a target you know for officer safety reasons alone and um you know we've we've had to do that in california and get as much night vision and good night vision and or thermal in the hands of you know all of our divisions not just special ops because what you said wayne was exactly spot on in that we are seeing a, a good percentage of these night hunters and these illegal, you know, poachers running that equipment already. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing it, um, we're seeing it on the coast. We're seeing them watching waterways, you know, we're seeing them, you know, um, in, in, you know, the, um, the wildlife trafficking realm. We're seeing it in the commercialization of wildlife realm with, uh, you know, some of these gang groups, you know, on the Delta taking out Sturgeon, right. And Sturgeon row, mm. um, striper, you know, things like that. Um, abalone, you know, any of that on the coast, not to mention big game species and, and everything else. So no, you're, I think you're absolutely right. When we think of the new generation of game warden throughout the United States and the challenges they're going to have, and they currently have in dealing with all of these, uh, these more egregious wildlife crimes that are all about money. They're all about everything we talked to at the conference we met up at, right? The commercialization for big, big profitable dollars and the incentive to decimate species because of the, you know, the almighty dollar. It's, it's just disgusting and it's never been more egregious than now. And I, and I think the focus hasn't been on wildlife law enforcement. And if, if we don't refocus back on that, we're, we're, we're going to lose a lot. We're going to lose a lot of animals. We're going to lose a lot of sturgeon. We're going to lose a lot of abalone if we don't refocus. I don't know about California, but I, I just feel like nationwide, the law enforcement officers that enforce these wildlife laws are, are on the back burner. And we, we need to put them back on the front burner. We need to, A, promote them and what they do, and we need to get some help money-wise, legislatively-wise, and bring back a focus. We absolutely do. We absolutely do. And I, I know you and I discussed this a little bit, but one of the things that, you know, when I, uh, when I was on Joe Rogan's show, that was a real shocker to him, and it wasn't even a, you know, necessarily a planned part of the conversation, but just happened organically, was when we talk about the thin green line, and we talk about how thin the thin green line of conservation officers and park rangers and border patrol military. But when we look at game wardens in that mix and my first book, what we did at the very end of war in the woods in the afterward, Dr. Swan put up a real nice kind of matrix and explained the population in every state, the population of the entire U S at the time. And this is going to be 2010 when that book was published. And then the number of wildlife officers in each state, individually and then collectively how many game wardens we have in the nation actually out there doing the work that we're describing 
And then what we did in Hidden War in my newest book is it's been exactly 10 years, almost published vacation date to publication date. And that was unplanned, but a good 10-year sample. Let's look at a decade and let's see what's happened in America on those same and look at the matrix breakdown of those same, you know, numbers. Mm-hmm. The population in every state, as you know, brother, has skyrocketed. Our national population growth, the people impacting our wildlands in both a negative and a positive way have increased exponentially. Um, yet the number of game wardens have only gone up by less than a thousand nationally, collectively, in a decade. That shocked me when we did that research for the new book. I really expected, as thin as we are, and as underrepresented as we are in salary, in you know maybe perception, um, to get more of us out there. I thought it would be at least a little bit higher than that. I mean, you figure a decade, 10 years, Wayne, um, population's grown up. There's been this, you know, the whole wildlife trafficking thing that the Obama administration really pushed to put teams in all these states to really good effect, different things like that, and, and just an environmental awareness. But I was very, very alarmed when the numbers came out, and that's, that's in uh, the new book. But more specifically, we're just getting thinner and thinner as a green line when we talk about that concept. And again, it's because exactly, I think what you said, the general public doesn't fully understand the diversity of tasks and responsibility that game wardens have, that we have to do everything that standard law enforcement do from a public safety standpoint, from a normal, uh, quote unquote, traditional perception of crime standpoint. And then we focus on wildlife. And now with limited, you know, law enforcement officers in cities, sheriffs, you know, large or small municipalities, federal officers, we're all working together on this. And I don't think the public fully realizes how much we have to integrate and work together just to get a certain job done because we're all low on staff and we're all low on support. So um, when I look at those numbers, um, and like I mentioned on, 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 on Joe's show, you know, when you look at wardens being on average 30, paid 30% less than a county sheriff, a city police officer, yeah, you look at the diversity and training and the things we need to do, everybody, we, we need more support. I mean, just on, on every level. And I think we're finally starting to get that awareness outside of law enforcement circles, outside of game ward agencies, when the public starts to realize this coming from mainstream support outside of just our world of, say, the conservation circle. And um, it's a message we can't send loudly enough right now. We really, we really need to change that for, for the sake of those limited, limited open space areas we have left nationally that we were just talking about. Right. I think from the 30s to the 60s, everybody knew who the game warden was because they were all hunting and fishing. Right. Outdoor recreation. Yep. Back then, we had mountains named after game wardens in northern New Hampshire. They, they, they had a huge impact. Today... We're not having that. Most people outdoor recreating are the, the hikers. Uh, a lot of people still fish, but the, they're experiencing the outdoors in different ways. So we, we need to right. let these TV shows that are going on, uh, you know, the one you were on, Wild Justice, uh, Northwoods Law, those things are, are helping us reconnect. Uh, hoping shows like mine definitely help to, to reach out to the public so they can understand the backside, the, the backstage sort of things of being a game warden. I kind of want to hit some of, because, you know, once a trailblazer, always a trailblazer, John. So before the, the Met team, can you hit some highlights in your career? Because I know you just didn't automatically become the, the leader of the Met team. I know there's quite the process and quite, you know, you told me your first game warden case, there was probably a few good ones in there, maybe a highlight there, kind of your, your, your history. I know I climbed through the ranks, you know, I started as a sergeant to a lieutenant. And I was happy staying where that, that was. So, to, to, to yeah, 
field. Yeah. But uh, and I know this is this is a whole lot to get in a little time, and hopefully we'll have some more time in the future to talk about these things. But you know, I, I just that when I see that word trailblazer, I'm like, yeah, he just didn't wake up one morning and was you know lieutenant in charge of the Met team. There was there was a process there that John became a, a leader in California prior to that. Yeah, kind of like kind of like your career, Wayne. So it was very similar. I uh, you know I always had the idea that I wanted to stay in the field as long as I possibly could. One because that's where I was most passionate, I felt most effective. Um, and two, we I kind of came up under those same mentors, you know, in the academy that either never promoted beyond game warden, or maybe they become a first level sergeant. Or well, for us in California, it's a lieutenant. And a lieutenant is a squad supervisor, but they're still actively working with their guys in the field or as much as they can around administrative duties. And I, I kind of watched my heroes and I noticed that they did promote, they didn't promote for like 15 or 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe they, uh, maybe they made it to the, they went to about the lieutenant level where they were a squad lieutenant out running deer decoys or spotlighting details with their guys and kind of leading the pack there and, and still involved in the game. And, Certainly, when I started the career, the last thing I had in my mind was ever promoting in any type of level. I just wanted to be the best wildlife crime fighter I could and learn in the process. Um, and it sounds like you and I are very similar that way. And from that standpoint, when I was in Riverside and doing the spotlighters, I thought, okay, if I really tackle these guys effectively and, you know, not only individually, but as a team with my squad mates down in that Riverside County Inland Empire squad, I said, I'm going to get really good at handling high stress situations, dealing with a lot of crazy firearms, dealing with some, you know, really unsavory characters that with massive criminal backgrounds, a couple years of that. And I felt pretty good doing what I was doing. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't kind of going into no man's land ill prepared. I, I had my backup. I had my support staff kind of covered. Now, fast forward, I was down in Riverside County for three years. And then I came up to back into Santa Clara County Back in the Silicon Valley, I got one of my, my, basically my old home position. And before I came back up to this area and started diving into um, the more difficult and challenging illegal baiting cases that we'll talk about in a minute, I was already developing into, not really planned, but was developing into some leadership roles early on, like two years in, down in Riverside. Um, I you know, always had an affinity for shooting, was a proficient shooter, um, an affinity for doing tactical stuff and was getting to just know, you know, like, like LA SWAT guys. And I was getting to work with LA sheriffs, uh, special enforcement guys that had tactics behind them and defensive tactics and firearms training and, you know, more tactical firearms than just shooting, um, Riverside County, different things like that. So and back I was in fortunate. Day- that was that was crazy the place to go yeah. for SWAT was LA and the surrounding areas were just known nationwide for their tactics. So they were. You were in an awesome they, spot they, to to absorb that. Yeah, it was a real blessing to be down where I was where I was placed. Right, it was it was shocking, quite quite honestly, a little frightening when I first got the assignment. <laughs> but it ended up being a blessing in disguise on that same level that you're talking about. We're talking about right now, and. When I was down there, um, I really, Dave Smith, great supportive supervisor, really, you know, wanted to promote my career and my learning ability. So, you know, he sent me to a firearms instructor school just two years on, an FBI certified school. Um, and, I, and I really gravitated toward that. I became the, the firearms instructor for a squad. And I was only a couple years on, and that was unheard of in those days. So I took it as a, a real honor. I, you know, kind of overdid the level of training. I started working with all those 
tactical SWAT type instructors that, you know, you, you're talking about in LA and kind of started to elevate our game a little bit from a training standpoint for what we had done traditionally up to that point right then. And this would have been 93, 94. Um, while I was also down there, I was roped into um, becoming an instructor lead for a program that's now a national program called Becoming an Outdoors Woman. And this awesome. was kind of out of the box. And I know we have it in other states and we kind of brought it and it, it came out to California. But this was to give women and kids especially that were traditionally left out of the mix in quote unquote, and not necessarily the case today. And again, not, not slamming anybody, but a traditionally male-based you know, in the family, father to son, grandfather to grandson um, type of activity. But some of the women involved in those families, you know, hey, I want to learn to shoot. I want to do some sort of hunter education. I want to go bust a clay target or I want to do an outdoor cooking or survival class. And so this program was put together just for that. And I was really lucky to be brought in as the firearms training lead and a kind of a condensed hunter safety class instructor for that process when I was down there. And that was developing, you know, some teaching, some leadership, some mentoring, and it was completely unpredicted from all of the anti-poaching operations I was doing and the, and the tactical shooting training I was doing, um, you know, for the squad with these other roles. But so, you know, those little leadership, uh, you know, breadcrumbs were kind of starting really early on, even back in the academy, even though I was a civilian kid without military experience and was 21 years old, I got picked to one of four squad leaders to lead a squad within the four squads we had in, in, in a medium to high stress academy with formal inspections every day and class A uniforms and PT drills. And I was working, Wayne, with, you know, vetted law enforcement and military veterans from either state parks or they were lifeguards or they were from the military and they were in their 30s. And I'm a, this, you know, wet behind the ears young kid and I'm a squad leader and in charge of leading men 10 years older than me with more life experience. So that was different. Um, and I, that was, that was challenging. That was a little stressful, but it was also an honor that, that my, uh, my Academy instructors, when they did interviews and got to know our backgrounds, you know, saw some, I guess, some of those leadership characteristics and, and gave me a shot. And I, and I didn't take it lightly. I I really, really, really worked hard to uh, support my squad and support my class and, and, and learn the process. So, those those leadership things were actually starting, you know, right from the start. Uh, for for lack of a lack of a better chronology, looking at it, and it sounds and like it just kind of went from there. And it sounds like that program, like becoming an outdoor woman, and things like that, added a softness to you too, as well. So you weren't the hardcore tactical guy. That you, you had that connection to others. Because I always tell law enforcement people they ought to have friends that are outside of law enforcement. Because when all your friends are law enforcement, absolutely. You, you talk the talk, you walk the walk, and uh, yeah, you, you stand out like a sore thumb. <laughs> you know, you need to bring, whether it's softness or a different perspective to things, to keep it in perspective. I think that is beautifully said, and it's absolutely true. And, you know, I, I grew up with, you know, with three brothers and sisters, and I grew up with really cool parents, and, you know, we didn't have a lot of resources. We had we had some rough goes there, you know, when we were kids, and we were always taught, man, um, Humility and appreciation is the key to everything and always treat people with respect unless there's an absolute reason not to. And I went into my law enforcement career wanting to be the best trained, best equipped, most capable tactical law enforcement officer that could handle any, you know, deadly force, taking on those gangbangers, you know, like on those spotlighting cases or whatever. But 
unless I have to escalate, there's no reason to escalate. You know, and we all know, Wayne, in, in doing, especially for a game warden by themselves, behind, you know, behind locked gates, no backup close, your biggest tool is your mouth and your brain. I mean, you've got to talk to people. You've got to be able to de-escalate. You've got to be able to relate to people and not alienate people. And I learned early on, even the most hardcore poacher, if they were not violent and they showed signs of like, man, I am caught and I feel like crap and, you know, I'm sick to my stomach and I'm going to double over and I've had those cases, that's not the time to beat somebody up. That's the time to be, okay, you're being truthful. You've just been caught red-handed. I don't need to, you know, I don't need to enhance the, the beat down you're already taken internally because your world has just changed forever. And just treating people with respect and fairness, even when you're catching, catching a bad guy. I'm sure you can relate to this. And I was telling this story of friends just recently. Some of my best informants for the most hardcore wildlife criminals I would have never caught came from guys I had busted. But because I treated them well with respect, de-escalated the situation, empathized versus chastised became informants poachers mm-hmm. to preachers and would go you know what man i always thought you guys were just you guys were just asses game wardens law enforcement you know i can i'm not going to listen to anybody but you you know you caught me in my worst you actually were empathetic we had a good talk you know i i feel like you listened i didn't feel judged which that's a huge you know that judgment we all hate judgment. We all hate to be judged and we don't want to be known as people that judge, but we do in our careers. We, how can we not, you know, with the type <laughs> of people we run across. And so when you say bringing that soft side, Wayne, I mean, you, you, you got to, you absolutely got to, and it just makes us better officers and programs like becoming an outdoor woman. were one of those other hunter education, conservation programs, uh, junior essay contest for future conservationists for kids that I helped put together way later into my career, even during the Met days, all those things just help us keep it real, keep our humility where it needs to be, and remember why we're out there, you know? Right. No, absolutely. Trailblazing along. So, you, Lieutenant is your first uh, supervisory in your squad area. That's that's just a little foreign to me, yep. but I know, you know, every state has its different supervisory roles. And it, it sounds like it's, it's very similar to our sergeants and lieutenants. It's, it's nice in New Hampshire. A sergeant still has a patrol area. A lieutenant doesn't have a yep. patrol area, but we still pretty much can do anything we want within the parameters of what the colonel wants us to do. I mean, that's one right. thing that I never right. wanted to go to uh, Kremlin, so to speak, the headquarters. Uh, that, that was key right. one of our former colonels, the Kremlin. So I, I just, you know, I, I said, you know, if I sat in a major's or a captain's office as the, as the colonel walks by and I'm not sitting in my chair, he's going to say, hey, where's Wayne? And if Wayne decided <laughs> right. to take a little ride yeah. in his cruiser, you know, he'd be like, yeah. baloney. But if Wayne is a lieutenant, says, I've had enough of this paperwork sitting at this desk today. Guess what? I'm going to go patrol. Right. No, no one walks by yeah. my office and says, hey, where's the lieutenant? So that was always my justification right. for, for, for staying in the field. Uh, you know, at times we worked a little harder than the, the guys in the, 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 the headquarters, but they, had a, they have a different set of difficulties there for sure. They, they have taken on challenges that, you know, frankly, I, I didn't want to take on. And thank God people take on those challenges and do a good job because it's very, very necessary, but I just didn't want to escalate yeah. to that point. <laughs> I'm not doing yeah. no, colonels I... or anything, and thank God we have a lot of supervisor colonels that, that do an outstanding job, think of their guys, and, and take care of the guys, and take care of the wildlife and, and everything that goes along with them legislatively. But, man, they have a whole lot more headaches than I do. Right, exactly. And, uh, 
it's uh, it, it's kind of similar on on my take. When when I finally did promote to be a lieutenant, which synonymous, like you said, with with most sergeants in in other states, um, <clears throat> it was really a perfect position. It was home hometown of Silicon Valley, so it was Santa Clara County. You know, I had worked with a lot of my squad mates and some of the best wardens in the state, dedicated, motivated team players, you know, no problems where promoting to be their supervisor was going to be an issue because we all work together effectively. So I was, I was lucky there. And, but I picked up about, had all the positions been full, I would have been supervising seven wardens. It usually fluctuated between five and seven, depending on vacancies because the state is a very, you know, Silicon Valley is a very expensive area to live in California. Not a lot of starting wardens. So as much as they like working here can stay, for that reason, you know, the plight of us all in the thin green line, right. right? But I also had San Benito County, which was a very Western rural, lot of, lot of backcountry, you know, poaching problems going on. And then I had a part of Monterey County. So, but I was still, it was all about the team. You know, it was all about making sure the guys were supported administratively, that they could get a hold of me and I could answer questions. And it was about doing details with them. So I, I kind of took that position a little reluctantly. I still, you know, I was, I think I was 15 years on at that point, 13, mm-hmm. uh, thir- somewhere in the 13 to 15 year mark before I, I actually, I actually went to that. I, I remember I'd actually, <laughs> this was the first and only time I think this has happened in our agency. Maybe it, maybe it's happened similar, but Mike carry on one of my uh, mentor instructors um, right from, you know, 1992 when I started that grew me up as a outside agency and in, internal agency instructor and being on our firearms and defensive tactics committee um, he was running our academy back in 2005, and I remember, uh, I remember right in, the, in in that time window, going up to the academy and actually becoming a lieutenant for six months to become an academy RTO and working with being a, a recruit training officer and doing day to day business with our academy cadets in uh, in one of the academies there there at Napa, and I remember going back to the field and demoting back to game warden and. <laughs> You know, uh, I remember Mike and headquarters staff, you know, just saying wow. straight up, they're like, man, you, you got to stay. We need you here. Yep. And, but, you, but only do it if it's right. And, you know, I just felt, I still felt like being in a permanent training leadership position was, it was still too early. I had a, a, a great archery baiting case, you know, in, in a really remote area already in the works. And it was that archery season starting and, I had a whole, you know, kind of, kind of my, my handpicked tactical type guys to help me work it. And I just didn't feel, I didn't feel the passion enough in training at that point to do it permanently. And, and Mike, Mike understood. And I actually, I actually demoted. I, I went from having that lieutenant's badge for six months and then, you know, going back out of class and then going back to, to being a warden. And it was the right thing to do at the time. It was the right thing, I think, collectively for me and the agency because they, they got my best work. And then a couple of years later, when the squad lieutenant's position came up, it was, it was definitely time because I could stay in the field. You know, I could work with new, new wardens. Um, and then that put me, had no idea at the time, but that's where I was at as a squad lieutenant position, starting to work all that cartel, you know, tainted marijuana, public land trespass grow stuff with the sheriffs. And I was a lieutenant at that time, and that was a good place to be. Because it, it allowed me to bring my squad mates in when they wanted and felt ready to do that type of job with our allied agency brothers um, of the sheriff's office. 
Uh, and then it also had me already as a lieutenant when eventually the marijuana enforcement team, our own specialized unit, was was developed. And um, I was able to test for that and, and very fortunate to get that job and, and run, you know, run that team for, for the start of it for uh, for six years before I retired. Right. And you couldn't let that baiting case go either. So you couldn't give that to somebody else. No. You had to make that case. Yeah. It sounds like that was uh, something you had case. in the works. Yeah. And, uh, you, it sounds like you really wanted that. Yeah, that was, it was an interesting one because it was an archery baiting case. And unbeknownst to us, it was uh, a hunter safety instructor that taught at a, our local archery shop and the owner of the archery shop and all these guys were all involved in it. And here they are teaching our new generation of youth, how to archery shoot, giving them equipment. People are buying stuff out of their shop and they're, you know, they're preaching the gospel of legal ethical conservation and they're going behind lock gates on some guy's property on a baiting pile to shoot archery, you know, basically to archery shoot deer over bait. And that was one of those long baiting cases of the many good baiting cases we did for about a, a decade that took, all season to do. I mean, we were on that thing right. for five or six weeks and finally caught him. And, uh, when I interviewed this guy, I mean, I, I almost, I almost, I almost fell to the ground when I found out exactly who he was and exactly what he was involved in. And I mean, that case made such a ripple effect in our poaching community. And it also, it also told you that there are those guys that absolutely need to get caught because the hypocrisy of teaching and doing what he was doing in the public and what they were doing behind, you know, lock gates, you know, when no one was looking, it was disgusting. And it was, uh, it was really neat to see that case through. And I, I needed to be there for that one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. How, how'd that case start? If you can talk about it. Yeah. It, it started with, uh, started with an informant, started with a good friend that was a park ranger that kind of knew some people and, you know, without going into too many, you know, not identifying any individuals, it just it just spun up where I've heard rumors that this is going on behind, you know, this particular area, but it's a real hard area to get into. And there's, you know, everyone's stacked up on top of each other in these little small kind of cabins where they live behind this lock gate. And this is in kind of the Redwood Forest in our Santa Cruz coastal mountains. So really dark, really tall canopies, dogs in the yards. It was one of those things that when I got a tip of where it might be, we had to go recon it. You know, and, and like like anything, and these type of baiting cases, Wayne, just to kind of put this out there, the type of camouflage and field craft and, you know, case workups and recon and, and you know, access identification, how to get in and out of these places and, and effectively work these places, all those things took so much, so much work just on the logistics side. That's what set us up for success on a special operations marijuana enforcement team, developing that later all the same field craft we were learning in sniper schools in SWAT schools in tactical tracking schools. And we were going to all those on our own at the time, a handful of us, you know, cause we were, we were still a long ways from having, you know, that, that specialized team. Right. They were all on these baiting cases. And this particular archery baiting case was by far the toughest. I mean, the canopy of redwoods and ferns and that type of forest that we would have to walk through at three in the morning to get up into our surveillance hide to watch and wait for this particular bait pile to, uh, you know, this, this baiting operation to happen. It was so dark, night vision wouldn't even work. There was not enough ambient light for our, our generation at the time. It was Generation 2. We weren't up to Gen 3 yet on our starlight scopes. And we had some of the, you know, the most recent night vision available to domestic law enforcement at the time. And I remember we couldn't even see with night vision going through this stuff. It was so dark. So we would creep, you know, kind of by braille through these yards, getting around dogs, 
and climbing up above the bait pile and setting up a hide in full camouflage and video equipment to wait for this to happen. And the thing that was so interesting about this case was unlike a normal baiting situation where you have a baiting stand and, you know, you've identified the bait and these guys are going to come out and set up on particular hunting windows and you're going to be there at targeted times. This guy lived in a mobile, uh, basically like a little mobile home, a little travel trailer. Mm -hmm. And he had the baiting station 30 yards outside his, his bait pile outside of his travel trailer. So he would hunt from inside his trailer and just watch through the window. And you just see him with his bow right there moving around. And so we're watching him through the window and he could, he could kill a deer at any time and, you know, and see him win and how the deer would get onto this, you know, onto the bait pile and when he would come out and when he wouldn't, it, it was crazy. So we spent three weekends straight, I think almost actually almost four weekends straight, sun up to sundown, you know, exhausted getting in and out at dark because, it, you know, just getting the infill and exfill from that site when he didn't violate, not to burn it or get burned for the next time we'd go out. That was a challenge in and of itself, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun at the same time. And we actually caught him on the last day of the archery deer season, what's called the A-zone season um, here in the central coast of California. And we crawled into that hide on a Sunday morning about 3 a.m., and kind of the sinister part about it is we're crawling up into the hide. We're seeing these little white flags on the ground on our trail. And we're like, okay, <laughs> are we burned? Because there are markers on our exact trail that we, you know, we move around every time. And right. then when we got into our little hide behind some redwood trees, about 80 yards above the bait pile, um, there was another flag there. But, you know, we have a saying in special ops and covert teams know this, you know, you're not burned till you're burned. So play it out unless it's unsafe. So, we were pretty dejected. I had that sick feeling in my stomach. So did my two partners and we slipped in, um, into our hide and we just waited. And sure enough, it wasn't the landowner this time, but it was his buddy that came in in the morning with his bow and arrow, with a big bag of fruit to add to the bait pile. He went out and freshened up the bait pile. Then he went and sat in a little hide, worked his archery equipment over it and gave us everything we needed to make that takedown. And we kind of descended out of the woods in full camouflage and face paint and you know, M14 rifles because we were behind lines and he was like, what's happening? And we introduced ourselves and it was one of those things where he was the art, he was, you know, the guy at the, uh, at the archery store. Uh-huh. He was also the guy that was, uh, also the guy that was depredating wild hogs for, uh, for land damage and had a good relationship with our agency and was on several depredation permits as an agent to depredate hogs legally. And when I saw him and he saw me, and my partners, it was a, uh, it was a major wake up call. Let's just say that. Mm. And, and those flags, Wayne, that we saw going up that hill, the owner, the guy we originally targeting had oh. killed a deer over bait the day before. And those, that was a blood trail. Oh wow! And while they, yeah. And while they ended up finding this deer, like a mile up the mountain, that blood trail allowed us to go back through interviews and forensics. And we actually went back to the archery shop in Gilroy that day after the case recovered the arrow that they had stuck that deer with illegally the day before. And based on the blood data off of the, off the arrow point, we were able to, you know, connect all the dots. And so we got them both, even though we had not been there the day of the kill. So we got another guy we didn't expect to be on the bait pile. We got the landowner. We kind of had that long conversation and, you know, they were very, you know, to their favor, they were cooperative. Uh, They were forthright, you know, they, they took a hard hit on that one, obviously. But that was one of those things If we had not dug in day after day after day and just, you know, dirty camouflage surveillance and crawling up through their yards every morning, 
never made the case. And uh, that was, um, that's really what, what set the tone to start to do more of the tactical work against these cartel growers later on in my career, for sure. And that's kind of the MO of the game warden nationwide, because uh, I can think of several cases that sound very similar. One of which was with a lot of bears, which was unnerving doing that night yes. navigation in and out when you know there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of bears on this illegal bait. And, you know, you, you, you couldn't use a light, you were out moving through, and then, boy, uh, that was unnerving. But, yeah, it, it sounds... We're, we're the operators in the woods, and like you said, that's that's we, we that's what we turn to. That's why we don't follow the same trail. That's why we we find our own way in. We find our own surveillance spots, and then we camp and we spend time. And there is nothing like a personal surveillance. Even throwing a camera up, I always hear throw a camera up, but I'm like nothing. Yep. Better than being there. The camera doesn't take everything in. Yeah, it it certainly doesn't. And uh, you know, it, it's funny. I'm I'm sure you and I can share this. We you know, look, look back at the end of, uh, and some really, really blessed careers and think back of those days, you know, when you put a month into a case like that and what it took and you kind of go, man, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's why it, <laughs> that was exhausting for one. Mm-hmm. But the best part about it was when you make that case, you know, um, mm-hmm. man, just how good it feels, how good it feels, the elation, the high, the, I mean, for, for months, you know, I'll, I'll see my partners and we'll share that same grin from making that type of case because, as you know, they're not easy. They are not easy. And not only do you put all that effort into it, but, you know, the stars have to kind of align, too, for you. You know, the timing. Um, I mean, the one day we were not on that hill was a Saturday because one of my partners, Marcos, and, and also later, you know, lifelong buddy on the team and in our careers together and also on the Met team and one of one of our snipers with us on on Met later on he got sick and it was one of those things that I think we just worked it too long he was so run down and we just didn't have we did not have the bodies to be able to do it effectively so the one day we weren't there because we were all exhausted one guy was you know facing the dealing with the flu you know we're trying to recover one day we're not going to do it and that's the day of course that the one bad guy that we targeted poaches out of, you know, a month. And, you know, just by the good graces, we happened to find that blood trail. He happened to shoot something the day before. And then he brought a friend in on Sunday that we got to see in firsthand, uh, you know, in living color. So it just, how it all aligns up to me just, just still amazes me. And I think uh, I, I look back on those things. I think there's just not a more rewarding feeling, man, as, as wildlife officers to, to do what we do. And, and even though, not everybody can necessarily relate to it or not everybody understands it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad through, you know, forums like your great podcast and, and doing Warden's watch and things like other podcasts and anything we can do with the TV, you mentioned, you know, wild justice and Northwoods law and all those other game Warden reality shows. Hey, the more the merrier, man, the uh, public loves to see this stuff and what we're really doing out there and how tough this stuff can be. And it's just what we got to keep doing one to protect our wildlife and two to just, just show the legitimate professional, thin green line of game wards that are out there nationwide they, they need the support that they deserve yeah and all, all this kind of builds up to your book and the, the the environmental impact probably was impacting animals habitat and everything so I, I i get how that transition happened because i can see you encountering this and getting mad not mad that they're really growing marijuana they're mad at how they're at what they're doing to the environment and I, I i totally get that and your book the hidden war is pretty 
awesome. And what, what an awesome way to end a game warden to career to have that much impact on taking back our habitat and protecting our wildlife. I, I know we, we talked about it before, John, but I certainly uh, want everybody to pick up your book and, and read it and then, and then listen to the podcast because it's, it's so enlightening connections with the canines, uh, everything. I just, I, I think it's a, uh, what, what an opportunity that you had in your career and, and what a way to end it. And then what a way to tell everybody about it. Cause it is so timely. People need to act. They need to act before we lose any more. Oh, thanks, brother. I, I really appreciate that. And, um, and yeah, we've been, we've been very, very lucky and very blessed with the response um, to Hidden War of exposing, you know, a, a different twist on, you know, what game wardens do. And it doesn't replace, it doesn't negate, it doesn't supersede anything a game warden does on the, all the traditional front stuff that, that you and I really based our careers off of and so many other wildlife officers throughout America have, but it just shows the diversity and the, the adaptability game wardens have to have to, to be truly progressive, to fight environmental threats and threats to our wildlife, wildlands and waterways that, that emerge. I mean, we're talking about the Academy days, brother, and I would have never imagined back in 1992 when I was watching my heroes and thinking about catching spotlighters and, and making that good reputation for myself as a good game warden that I'd be running a, you know, a specialized tactical unit and working out of helicopters with SEAL team veterans and, you know, doing more, you know, quasi spec op military SWAT type operations for the sake of wildlife. And it really, like you, like you said, Wayne, it wasn't about cannabis. I mean, you know, we're, we're one of those States in Cal, you know, California is one of the States that has regulated legitimate cannabis and, we're not an anti-cannabis team. The book isn't an anti-cannabis book. It's an anti-environmental crime, um, anti-threat to public safety on a national scale book, really. And I mean, even with the legitimate cannabis industry supporting Hidden War and the, and the stories and content within, it's one of those unifying messages that it doesn't matter where you sit on the spectrum for or against cannabis use, left or right. It doesn't even matter. Nobody wants to see our wildlife destroyed by um, trespass growers, you know, largely from cartel groups from out of this country, using banned toxics and prohibited poisons that are so nasty, the EPA banned them 20 years ago, on not only the cannabis, but in the waterways and in the food sources and being the cause of exponential levels of wildlife destruction, both in waterways and on land. So no one wants to see that. And you you hit it on the head again when you said, what a way to end a career. But to, to morph into something completely unexpected, but something we all on the team are very passionate about. And we're very rewarded when we can catch those type of criminals, just like back from the baiting and the, and the spotlighting days. These guys need to get caught. They need to get stopped. It's not just a California problem. The book goes into how this affects us nationally and what these groups are doing in other crimes that wildlife officers and other traditional law enforcement agencies um, are, are, are having to face on a national scale. So really appreciate the support and we're, and we're getting really good feedback on it. So uh, appreciate anybody taking a look. Yeah, no, thanks for your time. Really. I really appreciate it, John. Uh, again, a, a pleasure to, to talk to you for the second time remotely. I, I guess this is okay. We'll see how it all comes out in the end. Really. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Wayne. Thanks for having me on. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. 
Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.